In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Christ is risen. Truly, He is risen. Um, it's a privilege for me to be able to have this uh, brief time to reflect with you uh, on what I feel are some important things, and hopefully, in some small way, um, have this be a word of inspiration or even consolation uh, to people who might find this time to be um, really disturbing, disheartening, troubling, um, as I often find it to be. Um, I, I want to start off by just acknowledging the reality that we are currently experiencing. Right? So, uh, John Hopkins is reporting that 170,000 people worldwide have died as a result of the virus. And for the rest of us, um, millions of people have experienced job loss, significant change in their everyday life, loss uh, to access to communal worship and church, loss of access to support groups. I work with many people in recovery and um, not being able to go to su emotional support groups, support, support group for, for addiction, support groups for domestic violence. A lot of these things, although shifting virtually, uh, are just not the same. People are not able to go and connect with other people and feel heard, feel understood, feel connected. Um, and that's impacted people's lives tremendously. Um, I also want to acknowledge and I have this you know, great empathy for parents, especially of parents with young children, multiple young children, um, who are just tirelessly um, working at home between bathing the children, cooking, cleaning, providing education, making sure that they have you know, leisure time and activities and doing all this while managing finances and caring for other extended family members. This can feel so overwhelming and daunting. Um, you know, and to add to this, there is a palpable experience of loss when you can't even hug your parents or other family members um, because you're afraid that you can potentially cause them uh, to suffer or worse. Um, so I want, I want to acknowledge and I want to say to you that if you feel a sense of loss, a sense of sadness, fear, frustration, kind of despondency, um, that's normal. I mean, that's a normal reaction. And it makes a lot of sense that you would. And uh, my hope is that you'll know that you're not alone um, and that by God's grace, we'll get through this together. I was um, thinking um, that this, this struggle, this tribulation that the whole world's experiencing, um, 
is a sort of fire. Is a sort of fire, and um, it, it reminded me of a scriptural reading in um, the Epistle of Peter, First Epistle of Peter, where he says that the genuineness of your faith, uh, being much more precious uh, than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. And just to give you a context of um, why it is that St. Peter was saying this, St. Peter was writing to Christians who were Jewish converts, Jewish uh, people who converted to Christianity living in first century uh, Jerusalem, who were experiencing um, all kinds of hardships, physically abused, through assaults, uh, being socially ostracized, um, driven out of their community. And St. Peter, while in Rome, he was experiencing uh, similar things. But what he highlights in this, the last piece of, of that verse, for me at least, that there is a way that one can live both honorably and gloriously during the most difficult times if we maintain, and later on he expands on this, if we maintain our baptismal vows, if we maintain our commitment, our fidelity to the gospel. And when he talks about fire, uh, that we're tested by fire, I, I think about fire um, as having uh, multiple function or purpose. It can shape and refine uh, something that is good and make it even more precious and more good. Um, it could also take something that's useful and just destroy it altogether. We know that fire can generate uh, heat, light, warmth, energy, um, or, or destroy and kill. And it all depends on how we use it, how we respond to it. You know, for some, the sense of pain in the world is bringing out so much generosity and love and kindness and sacrifice for others. Um, and for others, it's bringing out um, anger and a lot of greed and judgment uh, and deception. Um, and I would say just kind of as a side comment that I hope that in finding ways to have our needs be met, uh, we don't go about it um, in a way that oppresses others around us. Um, you know, I've heard and uh, witnessed executives of big companies kind of call in their employees, give them their their last paycheck and say today's your last day 
good luck to you. You know, people who have devoted a lot of their their life, their time, their energy, um, but their leaders of their companies just bailed out on them. I've also uh, witnessed uh, videos of C CEOs in tears working hard to maintain the highest number of staff retention so that they don't have to cut any of their employees that they see as their their own family their own team members and they elected themselves to take the largest pay cut in the entire company so that their team members uh, don't suffer extraordinary i mean it's extraordinary there are people out there who are thinking about the collective good what's helpful for my neighbor my employees my team my colleagues you know what's helpful for my church how can i help others stand after they have fallen so during this time um, during this time of difficulty it makes us evaluate what's important to us. It makes us evaluate what are the values we want to stand for in life. But more importantly, it gives us an opportunity to put into practice the teaching of Christ that would otherwise be just whimsical words trapped in a historical book. There's an opportunity today for people to be a living scripture that is read by all to be a living scripture and when i think of someone who's a living scripture that was read by all you know someone who i've recently been reading about is mother maria skatsova mother maria skatsova was a a married woman with children uh, she was uh, russian by birth who lived in also lived in France during World War II. She migrated to France after the Bolshevik Revolution. And uh, when she arrived to France, she rented a small apartment in Paris. And it was said that this small apartment, uh, she opened it uh, for those who were poor and lonely, uh, those who were seeking refuge. When the Nazis took Paris, many of the Jews went to her and her spiritual father, sometimes asking for a baptismal certificate um, and as a way uh, to, to escape the country and as a way to, uh, to seek refuge uh, from being captured by the Nazis and ending up in concentration camps. Well, finally, uh, the house was closed down and uh, she was ultimately taken into a concentration camp in Germany. And while at camp, uh, she noticed that a guard commanded one of the Jewish uh, women who was with her uh, to go into uh, the gas chamber. And at that time, you know, the guards, they, they didn't have to have any compelling reasons to sentence someone to death. It could be that you coughed and they thought you were sick. It could be that you you looked weak or, or that they just didn't like you. 
you know, um, because the mindset was inevitably you were working to die anyways. And so if you were somehow um, not to their liking, um, then you were sentenced to death. And that's what happened to this woman. And astonishingly, um, it's noted that Mother Maria elected to take her place in line and die in the gas chamber in place of this Jewish girl, just as an act of pure love uh, to her neighbor. And I, I read this and I'm just so um, overwhelmed with emotions when I read it that the hardship in her life and the fire brought through the persecution can reveal the depth and the preciousness of her soul, you know, because the scripture says, for there is no greater love than for one man to lay down his life for his brother or his neighbor or another. And so here's what I know. I know that the faithful men and women of God, wherever they are, whatever condition they experience, they are always committed to truth, to love, and to hospitality. You know, I recently also read uh, about the 72-year-old uh, priest in Italy giving up his ventilator to uh, a younger patient who was in the hospital with him. The ventilator was brought to him by his own parishioners, and he ended up just giving it to a younger patient there. Uh, and shortly after the priest died. And I think these people, uh, what, what their life informs us is that they were able to do this because they believed whole, wholeheartedly that Christ was present in the here and now. And because they wholeheartedly believed that Christ was present here and now, they were able to act in a way that was so brave, so courageous, so loving, so sacrificing, uh, which was uh, just incredible. This idea of Christ being uh, present here and now um, is extraordinary and also liturgical. I, um, I remember the first time I uh, visited an Eastern Orthodox Church. I was living um, out on the East Coast in Boston and um, I went to participate in a liturgy. And of course, uh, the liturgy that was prayed uh, was St. John Chrysostom liturgy. And uh, during the call of the deacon to uh, the church to greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, I, I noticed the the people in front of me and uh, one man turned to the person next to him and he said, uh, Christ is in our midst. And the person responded, 
he is and forever shall be, you know. And um, it was very moving because it um, illustrated the faith that the peace among uh, people comes from the strong belief that Christ is in our midst here and now. Not that Christ uh, was incarnated 2,000 years ago or that Christ is going to come in the second coming, but here and now, Christ is manifested um, to us. And as a result of that, that we can uh, have peace and love towards one another. So, you know, while there's a lot of horrible things happening, um, I want us to just kind of shift focus a bit towards um, uh, becoming a healing presence to our family and to others. And I thought about um, seven things, seven things that are really important to me, uh, which I very often struggle to, to practice and make any progress in, but I also find them to be uh, very helpful, consoling, edifying, um, and we'll get through, I hope, uh, the first three, only the first three, uh, and then the rest for uh, a later time. But I want to read out the, the seven uh, to you. Um, the first one is radical acceptance. The second is establishing a rhythm. The third is being open to the present moment. Uh, the fourth is gratitude. The fifth is commitment to values. The sixth is humor. And the seventh is finding time to dance. Yes, you heard me right. The seventh is finding time. Uh, and I'll explain more when we get there. Uh, so in reflecting on the first one, radical acceptance or um, surrendering. Radical acceptance or surrendering. Why that is fundamental um, to everything else that uh, I'm going to say. Um, you know, in, in, in my line of work, I work with a lot of people um, who struggle with, with addiction. And part of their treatment, part of their recovery is that they participate in 12-step uh, programs like Alcoholic Anonymous, Narcotic Anonymous, uh, Pills Anonymous, Overeating, Overeater Anonymous, um, uh, various... Uh, support groups and in the 12-step tradition um, you know the idea is um, that one needs uh, a spiritual awakening because the understanding is that addiction is a spiritual disease is a spiritual uh, infliction and that one needs a spiritual awakening in order to, to heal and to become whole um, and interestingly enough, in the third step uh, of the 12 steps, it says that we have made the decision to turn our will and our lives 
over to the care of God. And it's interesting because sometimes I'll, um, I'll be working with someone and they've been sober for like a month. And I'll say, you know, hey, what step are you on right now? And they'll say, oh, I'm on step four. <laughs> and I'll say, you finished step three? And I'll say, yeah, yeah, I finished one, two, and three, like two weeks on step four. And in my mind, I'm thinking like, it's taking me 20 years, you know, to be able to honestly say I have turned my my will and my life over to the care of God. So I, I'm like really suspicious by that. I'm like, really? You really, you really have done this? Um, but this idea of turning over one's life and one's will to the care of God um, is a very difficult thing to do. And it's uh, the most challenging thing to do when there's a spiritual um, ailment, when there's a spiritual sickness. Because uh, what drives spiritual sickness, spiritual ailment, is self-will. Uh, is wanting to fulfill one's desire. And addiction is just that being amplified uh, a thousandfold. There's a, a kind of a humorous story that, that I like to share. Um, uh, one person who's very well-known in the 12-step tradition, his name is Bob D. And uh, he tells the story, uh, you know, he's been in recovery for over 30 years, so he's, uh, he's really delved into this and spent a lot of time understanding how this works. But uh, when he was a newcomer, you know, just barely had a few months uh, of sobriety, he was in a meeting, and after the meeting, an old-timer had heard him speak, and he went up to Bob, and he said, you know, Bob, I would really like you to work on step three, you know, and, uh, and Bob said, what's step three? You know, they have the 12 steps written on the wall, and he said, it's right there, read it. Uh, you know, he said, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And he said, ah, you know, I'm gonna, that's gonna be hard. I'm going to struggle with that for a while because I don't even believe in God. It's going to take me a while to really like wrap my head around that. And the old-timer says to him, uh, well, who said anything about God? If you turn over your life and your will to that chair over there, a miracle would happen. And Bob said, are you playing with me right now? And he said, I, I'm not playing with you. I'm very serious right now. If you turn over your life, your will to God right now, you will experience a miracle. And Bob said, all right, I'm going to test this guy. And he said, in this moment, I sincerely turn over my life and my will to the care of this chair. And then he said to the old timer, he said, well, what's the miracle now? And he said, well, now, my son, your life is no longer ran by a total idiot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's I mean there's some truth to that is that we think that if we have things the way that we want them they'll just be great you know and um, you know I don't want to carry on talking about the, the 12th step but in the big book of Alcoholic Anonymous there's a chapter in there uh, where it says that the addict is like an actor who wants to run the whole play, 
He wants to arrange everybody around them. And if only they would stay put, if only they would do what they were told, that everything would be great. Life would be fine. And sometimes we're like that. Like if we could just get people to act the way we want them to, if we can get things exactly how we want them, um, that we would just be happy and life would be great. Radical acceptance uh, is not that. Uh, radical acceptance is not that. But radical acceptance is also not complacency. You know, it's not that, you know, I don't really care what happens in the world. I don't care what happens to me. I'm just like, it, it's not complacency. You know, the, the one reference that I can use that it seems meaningful to me is when you think of the game Jenga, if you've ever played the game Jenga, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a wooden structure with various pieces and your job is uh, to be able to um, push and prod and to examine what piece could be receptive to change without collapsing uh, the entire system. And when you move one of the pieces and you see that the structure is about to give, then you have to make a decision. You either retreat and surrender to the fact that that's not moving, uh, or, or you force your will on it and risk the whole system collapsing and you experiencing a big loss. And so accepting the limitations that are presented to you while working within those parameters is what we're thinking about when we're talking about surrendering. You know, one of the, the texts that have surfaced that I really enjoy reading is that of C.S. Lewis in an article titled On Living in the Atomic Age. Um, so this is a, a time where, where people, people are afraid. They're, uh, they're thinking at any moment uh, this bomb is going to go off and, uh, and uh, it's going to annihilate them. Not just them, like entire villages, entire counties. And so he writes in this article, he says, if we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts but just not huddling together like frying sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. Which is beautiful. There's a sense of surrendering there. You know? Um, do the human sensible thing. Engage in life. Be present with your children, with your friends, with your reading, with your teaching, with your you know, bathing your children. Um, 
I also think of this example of uh, the Chinese finger trap. The, the Chinese finger trap um, is a small cylinder-like uh, woven straw or paper. And the idea is that when you insert your index finger on both sides of the cylinder, uh, once you inserted your finger enough, uh, what ends up happening is the, the contraption tightens around it. And, and the more you struggle with it, the more it tightens uh, firmer. Uh, and so the, the resistance uh, creates more tension. And the more you resist, the more tension you experience, the more helpless you feel. Uh, and so actually in order to be able to get out, and I have tried this before, in order to get out, you have to really uh, try to relax and try to begin to work your way out very slowly and methodically. Many of us feel like, well, uh, we have surrendered. You know, we've surrendered that this is life. I mean, it's not like we have alternatives. I mean, these are mandates and we're obliging by the mandates of the state to stay home, to not send our kids to school, to do what we're required to do, maintain social distancing and so on. Um, and so we are. So St. Silvan the Athenai, he, he sheds some light on this. He says, um, how do you know if you have surrendered and you're really actually living according to the will of God? And he says, here's a sign. If you are distressed over anything, it means that you have not fully surrendered to God's will. Although it may seem to you that you live according to his will. He who lives according to God's will has no cares. If he has need of something, he offers himself and the things he wants to God. And if he does not receive it, he remains as tranquil as if he had gotten what he wanted. So, um, he has a need, he asks, he receives, great, he doesn't receive, he says, okay. That's of course a, um, a very high standard to live by and most of us don't respond that way um, especially if what we're asking for feels like it's very important for me um, or even very important for my family um, there's there's a sense of turmoil there when when those requests are, are not being answered according to my will according to what I want there's a struggle there. But at least we can take St. Solon's words as a, um, an image of what it looks like for someone to totally trust God, for someone to totally rely on God, to someone to totally submit his will to God's will. That's what that might look like. And it's something that we can begin to slowly move towards uh, and hopefully one day come, come close to that.
least that's my hope. I want to rush through the, the other two points and then come to a stop um, to avoid you going to sleep. Um, the second point is establishing a rhythm through a routine. So the first one was uh, radical acceptance or surrender. And the second one is establishing a rhythm through routine. So I think we could learn a lot through the monastic community, um, particularly given our circumstances now. You know, the monastic community, uh, every monk and nun lives by a canon, a rule. And this canon or rule includes time for personal prayer and communal prayer, time for rest, um, alone time, uh, time for work, um, and sometimes for some of the monks, even time for service, where you know they can go out and meet visitors and, and welcome them and so on. And this routine helps to, to create a balance between the human need uh, it attends to the physical need, to the emotional, spiritual, uh, and they seem to do it uh, gracefully. Also, what we learn uh, from, from that lived routine and structure is that they're using time blocks, which is better, for, better than us trying to create like to-do lists, right? Because right now, when we make to-do lists, we say, well, I'll do this in a couple hours. I'll, I'll do it later. Later comes and say, I'll just do it tomorrow. I mean, where are we going? We're not going anywhere. We have all the time in the world, you know? But using time blocks saying, you know, uh, I'm gonna pray from this time to that time. Uh, I'm going to have downtime from this time to that time. Uh, I'm going to connect with family during this time. Um, creating creating time blocks, creating structure, it helps in a couple ways. And I know for some people that seems overly regimented and just not appealing, which is okay. But, but, but it helps in, in some ways, and I'll tell you how I think it helps. One, it, it mitigates uh, perpetual procrastination, like I said earlier. You know, I just won't do it now, I'll do it later, and later come. Um, because if, if you're consecrating uh, a time for a specific task, then uh, when the time comes, you know that you should be given to that task. The second thing is it helps reduce doubts. You know, oftentimes if we're just doing things arbitrarily while we're doing something, you know, let's say you're working on fixing the garage, you're cleaning the garage, and you think, uh, shouldn't I be doing, shouldn't I be praying? Shouldn't I be spending time with my child? Shouldn't I be, you know, and, and then all the shoulds come in, and you're vacillating back and forth. Uh, but again, when you're using time blocks, you, you know that this is a time that you have uh, kind of carved out to do this very specific task. The other benefit to doing that is it helps you evaluate and make changes based on your experience from the previous day. So you evaluate and you say, yeah, it seems like I spend a lot of time doing something that I don't 
feel like very valuable to me or very important to me. And I'd rather make some changes to that. I think I would rather, you know, spend more time with my, my children or I'd rather spend more time reading or whatever it may be. Hopefully spending time with children and reading are not competing with each other. I think your children should always come first. But, um, but also I, I think this is um, a way that we can honor God, our family, and our commitment to one another. When, when you're not taking care of yourself, others feel it. You know, you're irritable, you're cranky, you're distracted, uh, and that impacts your family. You know, when you're praying, when you're sleeping adequately, you're exercising, you're participating in work around the house, you, you ease the difficulty experienced by others because you're presenting your best self. And it also helps a sense of collaboration. Um, everybody feels like they're in it together and they're working together. I want to move to the third point now and talk about um, being open to the present moment and what it brings. I think this one is really important. Um, I believe that everything we experience has the chance to transform us into uh, more of who we really are or less of who we really are created in the image and likeness of God and so everything we experience can transform us into more loving generous compassionate people or more selfish judgmental ungrateful people and um, I think that lies on a con continuum um, you know there's a really helpful important book I highly recommend it. It's called Time and Despondency by Dr. Nicole Rokas. And in this book, um, you know, Dr. Nicole um, talks about why it is that people experience uh, despondency. She defines despondency as this feeling of restlessness, irritability, distraction, um, like feeling this present moment lacks purpose or meaning and, and having a desire to escape it. And uh, she, she brings in the writing of Evagoras from uh, the fourth century and his writing on despondency. And it seemed like Evagoras had noticed this, uh, he writes about Akedia, uh, this, what is translated into despondency, but he writes about it as something that he notices uh, among some of the monks. And he talks about them, you know, um, complaining that the, the sun is going down too fast or not moving fast enough, that he's observing them outside of their cell pacing or visiting other cells. Um, it's just kind of wandering and uh, restless and um, you know it's easy for for me to experience that a lot of the times if you know I may be sitting 
with my daughter and I can be in my head, you know, worrying about the future, hoping I could be somewhere else, doing something else. Um, and it's often the case that we can go into our head and not want to be in the present moment. Um, and Dr. Nicole writes about this. She says, the more we build up our fantasies, the more intolerable the present becomes because we cannot truly escape. It develops into a prison, lock us, locking us into a seeming lack of control or freedom. And so the more you escape into your head and in your head you go into the past and the future, it makes this present moment almost intolerable. But what's interesting is the only time, the only place you can experience the connection with God is in the present moment. Because this is where He is, in the here and now. You know, you can't connect with God in the tomorrow because you're not there yet. And you can't connect with God yesterday because you're not there yet anymore. And the only time you can actually connect with God is in the here and now. And that's why we have to open ourselves up to the here and now. Um, and that's really important. And so going back to, you know, if I find myself going into my head, I can then say, you know, how can I, how can I just enjoy this moment with my daughter? take advantage of this why not connect with her love her with all my heart my being why not create memories with her uh, in this very moment it's a it's there for me it's available for me um, you know I think the other thing is that we we've created We've created this, uh, this skewed uh, value system where um, we've placed greater value on things that society told us are important and lesser values on other things that might even be important to us. Uh, it was really interesting, I'll say this and, 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 uh, and I'll end, but uh, there was an interview that I watched many years several years ago um, um, with Mother Teresa and she was asked by a reporter well, what's it like what's it like uh, when you're meeting with these dignitaries and high-ranking individuals you know like people these are really important people and they come to you here in the slums of Calcutta and they're meeting with you well, what is what is that like and she says well you know it's important work all our work is important. You know? And when I clean the toilet, it's also important. And I have to do it to the best of my ability. I have to tell you, that was a paradigm shift for me. Things were never the same for me when it came to that very specific point. The idea that she just had to be faithful in that present moment regarding 
regardless of what she was doing, whether she was cleaning the toilet or meeting with a dignitary, that she just had to be faithful, present to the moment, um, and, and giving herself uh, to that moment, being faithful. Paradigm shift. I, I mean, it was amazing. We can experience Christ in the mundane and seemingly unimportant daily task of our lives if we are open to finding Him there. I want to stop here and continue with the other four points at a later time. Glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen.